We all think about what we eat. We plan our meals or count carbs or do any number of other things when it comes to what we put in our bodies. But do you ever think about the flavor that you consume? Sure you do. What we eat or drink either tastes good or it doesn't. In fact, taste is the number one consideration in what we consume. Yet there's more to it than just like or dislike. And there's even a whole industry dedicated to it. Flavor is memory. Flavor is feeling. Flavor is science. Flavor is art. Flavor is McCormick Fona. I'm Corey Doucette, and welcome to our Flavor University podcast, where we explore the science, artistry, and industry behind flavor. Every action has its equal or opposite reaction. Push and pull, creation and destruction, or endothermic versus exothermic. Not all reactions are like fireworks, visible and vibrant. Some are subtle and slow, like oxidized iron turning to rust. Flavors have many of these reactions often making food interesting or exotic. The punch in the mouth that is our sour candy or the delicate floral notes of a glass of wine. That's what we're discussing on the podcast today with our special guest, senior principal scientist, Lisa Bird. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Corey. How are you doing today? Thanks for joining us. I am doing well. (laughs) All right, all right. So, Lisa, we keyed things off here. We're going to be talking about reactions today, food and flavor reactions. Really excited about this. I, I have so many questions, some that are not on the sheet, a lot of them that are probably just like something you've never thought of because I hear reaction, I think mad scientist (laughs) kind of thing. And and I'm hoping you're like the Miss Frizzle of flavor reactions here. So why don't we start out with the easy stuff? Go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, what you do, how you came into the flavor industry. Okay. Well, my name is Lisa Bird and I have worked for 31 years for McCormick, but 23 of those years have been in the process flavor lab. And that is the lab that I currently work in. And I came to the process flavor lab in sort of a circuitous route because I started my career. I have a BS in chemistry. So I always assumed chemistry. I'll be in a chemistry lab. And my first job at McCormick, I was. I actually worked in our analytical chemistry and I started in our pesticide lab. And all of that was interesting. I was always curious about what other people were doing in their labs. And I had a great mentor who, when I would finish my work, I'd go over to her lab and find out what she was doing. And she was doing flavor research. I was like, what is this flavor? And how can I learn more about it? So I would go and sort of volunteer there. And about the same time, I was thinking about going back to school. And her name was Leslie. And she said, well, have you thought about what you would go back to school for? And I said, well, probably chemistry. And she's like, well, have you thought about food science? Well, no, I had not. I did not know about food science, and apparently there was a whole food science program at the University of Maryland, of which I was unaware, so I ended up applying, and I went back to school while working at McCormick, and all the while, Leslie was mentoring me, and when I graduated, a position had opened up in her flavor research lab. And I was really excited. And unfortunately, well, not fortunately for her, unfortunately for me, she got her dream job out in California doing flavor research in a winery. So, I mean, I I can't begrudge her that, but I had left analytical and I was working in flavor 
delivery and release at that point. So I did a, that for a couple of years. And then a position opened up in process flavors. So I went to go talk with the guy who was running the process flavor lab at the time. And I said, can you tell me about this? This sounds really interesting. And he said, well, you know, I'd be willing to take you on because I didn't have any flavor compounding experience or reaction experience, but I did have a chemistry degree and a master's in food science. And he's like, I think you could learn this. And he was willing to mentor me through it. So that was back in 1999. And I have been in the process flavor lab every day since, and every day is a new challenge. And I really enjoy it. We try to really reinforce to all of our, you know, educational listeners out there, you know, you never know what life is going to hand you, what path you're going to take, you know, whether it's a rather circuitous route like you've just described or, you know, straightforward. But it sounds like a lot of your chemistry skills were easily transferable. Is that is that true or is it just something you were you were just like, you know what, I know how to combine chemicals or, you know, how they work. So this is going to work for me for food. Well, absolutely. Having a, a strong foundation in chemistry definitely helps me do process flavors and, and create them because there is a lot of chemistry to it, but there's a lot of art to it as well. And the thing about reaction flavors and process flavors, a lot of what we do is based on the Maillard reaction. And the Maillard reaction, also known as non-enzymatic browning, um, is the reaction between proteins and, and reducing sugars. So understanding the, the chemistry between why a protein functions the way it does, what are its active parts and how it's going to bind to that reducing sugar um, to ultimately create these process flavors. Yes, definitely having a background in chemistry was a huge help. Now, you've mentioned some of the reactions here, more specifically the Maillard reaction. What is it, what's important about reactions to flavors or reactions in flavors? You make reaction flavors every day when you are cooking something or baking something or roast grilling something. You are a Maillard chemist at that point. And it's not just the, the protein sugar reaction, but it's also all the fats that are involved in it. Think about when you are grilling a steak and you know how the more marbling there is in a piece of meat the more delicious it is. And it's because as you're heating it, yeah, you're getting all those thermally generated flavor notes, but you've got this, all the lipids that are in, in the piece of meat too. And they're going on to react with these Maillard products. And the whole thing ends up being what we think of when we eat this delicious grilled New York strip, or when you have that, you know, your buttery cupcakes or cookies and you get the brown on the outside and the butter cooked in, all of those things marry together. And there's a whole lot of biochemistry going on because of that. So does that kind of answer your question? Or Yeah, it definitely hits it on the head for me. <laughs> I mean, and what you're talking about, it just seems so, some of it seems very contradictory. Like when you mentioned the fat inside of a piece of steak, like Wagyu beef, every time I see it, it just like, it's, it's marbled to the hills. And it just looks so counterproductive to what I would want to taste because I'm used to thinking of fat as like gristle and, you know, kind of chewy. But you're right. I mean, the, the more striation I can see in there, the, the better that it tastes, mm -hmm. which just seems so odd to me. But let's, let's kind of let's backtrack a little bit and let's talk about let's, let's break down your, your job into like one day. I know it's going to be hard because I'm sure there's a lot of topics that you touch and a lot of things that you do in a day. Because if somebody asked me, I, I could simply just say, you know, I fix computers. That's what I do. <laughs> you know, and they get that. But, you know, for you, I don't think it's that simple. But please try, try and take me through a day with you. Well, 
a typical day for me, there are two really important parts about my day. One, meeting my customer expectations. And two, keeping our plant running. Because if we are not delivering our flavors or our seasonings or any of our products to our customers, they're not going to be happy. So it's kind of a twofold approach. So when I start my day, I'm looking at the briefs that I have in-house. So briefs would be requests that our salespeople put in for flavor development. They get two types of briefs. Some are for what we would call a standard. So we would have that in our library already and we're able to ship that out right away. But sometimes they might have special requirements or we don't have something that's exactly what they want. And I think that's one of McCormick's strengths is we definitely make custom flavors. We're more about meeting our customers' needs. And we don't want to give you a cookie cutter flavor. We want to give you a flavor that's unique to your product. We want it to work the best with what you have in mind. So we have to take into a lot of a lot of different constraints. So for instance, does it need to be non-GMO or does it need to be non-GMO project verified? Does it need to be from the name source? Does it need to be Whole Foods compliant? All of these things figure in how I'm going to develop that flavor. So I have to look at the brief, figure out, okay, what are their guardrails and how can I work within them to create the best flavor to meet their needs? So we, we do that. I'll write my formulas. Once we have the formula developed, then it's time to go to the bench. And that's when I go to my ingredient closet and start pulling out the the different reactants I want to put in there. And then I, again, it is very much like following a chemistry formula because you've got this recipe and it's very important how much you're putting in of each thing because you do, you, you want to have it balanced. Much like if you remember back in high school when you were doing your stoichiometry, well, same kind of idea, you know, you, you want to have enough amino acid, enough reducing sugar that you're going to get that, that reaction. But you also need all the supporting characters in there too, because you want to have a well-rounded flavor. So then I think about, okay, what other things are going to function well with that base and, and adding, adding those nuances where, do, you know, how much mouth do what feel do I want to have in there? And all that'll help me select the ingredients I want to put in. So once I've got them all weighed out, I load them into my reactor. Now I got to figure out, okay, what conditions do I want to react these? And think about it. If you're cooking something at home, if you're going to cook something low and slow, it comes out tasting very different than if you were high heat and sear it. Again, different chemistries happening. So what kind of temperature am I going to use? How long am I going to cook it? I mean, and you can see this, it's a browning reaction. If you leave your cookies in the oven for seven minutes versus leaving them in for 12 minutes, you're going to see a visible difference because that Maillard reaction progresses through time and temperature. So that I create my program that I, I put into the controller of the reactor. I seal the whole thing up because in our lab, we like to use uh, pressure reactors. And think about it. If you had a pressure cooker at home or an Instapot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I have a $50,000 Instapot. So once that's sealed up and ready to go, you know, I have a pretty good idea of where I'm going, but that's the neat thing about science and experiments. You don't always know. And what comes out of that reactor, obviously, you know, our tongues and our noses, they're going to be the ultimate guide because what we do best is sell flavor. 
And if it doesn't taste good, we haven't hit our mark. So it's really important. And a lot of times it takes a couple iterations till you get to the point where you're delivering what our customers want. So it's a very iterative process. So it may take me a, a few tries, but luckily I've got lots of reactors and I have an excellent technician helping me as well. So um, it can get kind of stinky in the, in the lab sometimes. <laughs> but uh-huh. I just tell people, you know what? That is the smell of success. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, we're talking about the Mayard reaction primarily here. Can you list off some of the other reactions you're dealing with on a daily basis and kind of maybe break those down for us? Well, the Mayard reaction is a misnomer because it's not just one reaction. I mean, what we're thinking about with the Mayard reaction, I had mentioned earlier, it's about proteins and sugars, but it's actually a little more specific than that. So the building blocks of a protein are amino acids. So they have an amino group on there, which has a nitrogen. So that's one half of the Maillard reaction. But the other half is the reducing sugar. And what we talk about with a reducing sugar is that it's got that active carbonyl on there, which means it's basically a carbon with a double bond to an oxygen. So it's called carbonyl. And it's got this collection of electrons. And then we've got this amine with this positive charge, Well, opposites track, right? So the amine goes in, attacks the carbonyl, and that is the first step of a Maillard reaction. So it's from there, it goes through a lot of complex rearrangements. They form Amadori compounds and eventually form Strecker aldehydes. But all these things are continuing to react with each other. And maybe that Strecker aldehyde because again, it's got that carbonyl with all those electrons. It's going to look very attractive to any other amino acids or proteins that are in there. And then it can in turn react and trigger out a whole nother cycle of reactions. So it's actually pretty complicated. And then throw in, we've got fat in there too, which, you know, the fatty acids are interacting w- with these Mayard products as well. And in the end, what you get out, if you were to take a reaction flavor and put it in a GCMS, that chromatogram that's generated from analyzing that reaction flavor is going to have so many peaks. So it's very complicated. And that, you know, some of those peaks may be in there at PPM, PPB levels, but they can have such intense flavor contributions that it only takes a little bit to really boost out that flavoring and get those notes that you want. So let's let's take a few of those terms. Like when you're saying the chromatogram bumps, what 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 bumps are these? What are we looking at? You know, you know the peaks. I mm-hmm, mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> the peaks in the chromatogram. They'll they'll be a multitude of peaks. Maillard reactions produce very complex chromatograms. Were you to look at one, you'll see a hundred peaks on there. Not all of them are significant, but sometimes even ones that look like they shouldn't be, they do have flavor impact. And one of the things that w- that we can do here um, that's really interesting and helps you learn more about your flavor is we have a olfactory GC. So basically I wear a headset with a microphone and there is a sniff port. And so as the flavor is separating into its various peaks. They're coming off and they're going to the mass spec detector. But there's there's also a portion that comes off to the nose piece. So I'm 
smelling these things as they're coming off and I can describe them. So I can hit the button and say, you know, I'm getting something very roasted or I'm getting something that's chocolatey or I get something very meaty and I'm marking it on the chromatogram as I'm putting these comments in. And the neat thing about it is by doing that, I have marked the peaks on the chromatogram that are actually contributing to the flavor. So then we can go back, look at those peaks, look at the mass spectrum for that particular peak and identify the, the flavor co compound associated with it. So it's very interesting. We learn a lot about, okay, well, what really makes the flavor impactful? What is contributing? Who are, who are my important players in this? Got it. So we're talking reaction flavors here, mm -hmm. and I often hear things about compound flavors. Now, do reactions make compounds or are they two different things? What's the difference between these two things? So they're two halves of a delicious whole <laughs> because compound flavors, when you're making a compound flavor, you know, there are over 2,000 chemicals on the generally recognized as safe list. And that's one of the art of flavor creation that a flavorist does is that they learn what all those chemicals are and, and what synergies they have with each other. And they're almost like colors in an artist's palette. So they create that whole flavor picture by blending these different notes together to, to form that total, like the strawberry or the watermelon. By contrast, the reaction flavorist is thinking about that reaction in terms of where they want to end up. So they're going to choose their amino acids and their reducing sugars depending on, on where they want to end up. So it's not, so you are choosing ingredients, much like the compound flavorist, but you have the added bonus of time, temperature, pH, all these other factors that don't appear on the ingredient statement. Mm -hmm. So so it's a little, another level of complexity that's going on that you can build into these flavors. Also, reaction flavors are thermally ge generated. Obviously, we're using heat, whereas a compound flavor, you're, you don't have to heat it to make it taste good. It's, you know, they, they can combine those flavors. They just have to get the, you know, the right ratio and have the finished flavor, whereas I definitely have to go through some sort of thermal process. So I think that kind of answers my next question, but I'll ask for a little bit more detail. When I'm trying to create a flavor, why wouldn't I choose reactionary flavors all the time? Well, that is another good question because they are more complex. Contrasted to a compound flavor, sometimes they can be a, a little bit more expensive because you have to use them at a higher level. So one of the things, whereas you might use a compounded flavor at 0.2% in your, your base, most reaction flavors a little higher than that, probably an average use level will be 1%. So if you're very concerned about cost and use, obviously you're gonna have to use more compound, I mean, more reaction flavor to get the intensity you might want. But don't despair because we have a solution for that. It doesn't mean that you have to choose one or the other because you can make a reaction flavor and it be the base and then do a compounded top note on it, put the two together, best of both worlds. So you got this complex, delicious reaction flavor, and then you got the intensity of a compounded top note, and you got a winning combo. My gosh, I, I would never think to to pair anything like that. In my mind, I mean, when I'm thinking of trying to create a more robust flavor or or whatever, I'm just like, 
you know, what kind of food do I pair with this wine so that I can get the most, you know, flavor out of it? Mm-hmm. And, and then when I do it right, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm a chef now. Uh, <laughs> but I'll tell you, I don't get it right very often. I will say that. <laughs> That's why science is a process. <laughs> One thing about process flavors, reaction flavors, is they can actually give you technical insulation because they are complex and like you can't tell from the ingredient statement exactly how to make that flavor because what was your temperature? How long did you hold at that temperature? What was your pH? All of these things influence the outcome and create a different flavor. And when you look at that chromatogram, good luck figuring that one out. So it's a great way to put kind of your signature into your product. And once you have something that's complex and you have that technical insulation, it's a lot harder for your competition to knock off your signature product. So kind of like a copyright, a flavor copyright, if you will, built into the the DNA of the flavor. Yes. Amazing. Yes. Another uh, also point that I wanted to to mention, because I think this is where, and compound flavors are great and they, they, they do fill a lot of needs. But when you think about how a uh, process flavor is made, it's made with heat. So because of the fact that it was a creation of a thermal process, it's pretty heat stable. So if you're going to bake with it or fry with it, they're a lot more rugged. You don't have to worry about it flashing off. The third thing that's really nifty about process flavors is that there are the volatiles, which you see in your compound flavor, but there's a whole lot of non-volatile that happens. And this is important when you think about mouthfeel and umami or kukumi. Reaction flavors can deliver these notes, and that's all on the non-volatile side. All of that figures in into your experience with flavor. So you're eating a delicious beef flavor, and then your mouth is watering too because of the umami that's in there. And that's all part of that flavor experience that makes you enjoy it. A lot of people think that reaction flavors are just savory. Well, that's not true. There's the whole world of sweet brown. You wouldn't have a caramel if you didn't have a Mayard reaction. Because think about when you're making a caramel at home, what are you doing? You have that heavy cream, you've got butter, you've got sugar, and then you're stirring it in a hot pan and you're getting, well, you're getting caramelization as well, but you're also getting mayor chemistry and that delicious kind of cooked milk with the brown butter, sheer yumminess. And that wouldn't be possible without a mayor reaction. sounds like you're describing a good creme brulee to me. <laughs> that too, that too. So we're talking a little bit about time and temperature. Those are the two main things that distinguish us from compound to reaction flavors. Now, Mm -hmm. do you have kind of an example of a reaction Maillard process here or or example? Well, uh, the way you can think about it, so chocolate flavors are a great example of Maillard chemistry. Now, you can make a compounded chocolate flavor, but if you want to have more nuances and more of that roasty brown, deep chocolate flavor, a reaction flavor might be what you're looking for. But if you think about it, not all chocolates are created equal. I mean, a a milk chocolate, yeah, it has the milk in there and you might have some cooked milk notes along with that too. Um, But a dark chocolate, you know, it's more roasted, more intense on a lot of those 
brown compounds. So for instance, if I were making a milk chocolate reaction, I might have my temperature a little bit lower than I would on a dark chocolate reaction. Understood. So, I mean, we're talking basically kind of a low and slow process maybe as opposed to, you know, a a flash process, like the difference between, say, as you had mentioned, a slow cooker versus an Instapot, for example. Right, right. Instapots can be slow cookers. Mm -hmm. I would give it, I think a good example would be um, chickens. So whether you want to do a rotisserie chicken versus a brothy chicken. So uh, a brothy chicken, you know, it's more the soup. When you're making soups, you're cooking them a long time. And well, depending, you know, uh, so you would want to have more of a gentler hold time and temperature. Again, you're thinking about what would I put in my chicken to for a brothy chicken versus a roasted chicken on the roasted chicken, you know, with that rotisserie, it's getting all those, those brown compounds on the outside of the skin. So I would have it up higher for that too, to give that crispy brown yumminess with there versus, and it's probably going to have a little bit more fattiness too, because the skin had the fat in it versus the brothy chicken where, yeah, I'm going to keep it low, but slow, slow, you know, I'm going to have my temperature up higher and have more fat in it for the rotisserie. Yeah. I mean, I'm always saving the crunchy bits after the fact because they always make a great, you know, sauce or gravy after the fact because you get that, you know, the flavor of the chicken. And in a way, what you're describing here is that everybody is essentially a, a reaction, uh, a reaction flavorist because when I'm cooking at night or when I'm cooking dinner, whatever it is, I'm thinking of my end product. I want, mm-hmm. you know, I know what I want to make. How I get there is, you know, often what my wife complains about because I do extra <laughs> steps that don't need to be happening. But I still want to try. I still want to I want to see what I can do. Well, and one thing I forgot to mention too, because we are McCormick and McCormick has 130 years of spice and herb experience. And think about it. Corey, when you were mentioning you cook at home, I bet you just don't put the meat on there. You probably have a rub or a marinade or something cool layering in that flavor. Again, we do that in in the process flavor lab. We're not just making the meaty flavor. We're also adding in those nuances that people associate with meat. Nobody just has a hunk of flesh. They have their secret recipe. So again, a lot of those things that we associate with our roasted chicken or our steak are some of the herbs and spices that go along with it. Have you ever seen a, a, you know, most marinades have garlic and onion in them. So you would probably want to have those subtleties mixed in with your, your flavor to, to kind of trigger those. You, you mentioned flavor memories. People have flavor memories and they think about those things that they associate with the main thing. Matter of fact, when I first started training, one of the senior flavor chemists here and you know he did he dabbled a little bit in savory but you know he's primarily compound flavorist but he was telling me he's like and this is back when hvps were much more popular i know we don't use them a lot now because of the allergens and gmos and all that but he said you know most people will if you mix a dark hvp and a little bit of garlic and then another bad one now the msg he's like you mix those three things together people tell you it's beef because that's what they're used to Mm -hmm. you know and that sometimes that's what we're after we're after that you know that nostalgia feeling that feel you know something that conjures up a time of happiness you know Mm -hmm. people eat when they're sad so that they can feel better you know in the outcome this is amazing stuff but my my next question is 
kind of like, it sounds like the Mayard reaction is something that I want all the time, you know, for every food I cook or make. Is, is that the truth? Like, do I always want this reaction or is, can the Mayard be negative too? There's a caveat with that because you don't always want the Mayard reaction. I was thinking about milk powder. So what's in milk powder? It's got proteins because all those caseins and whey proteins, I mean, they're really good for us. And But then it also has a reducing sugar and it's got lactose in there. So we have both reactants now for a Mayard reaction. And you know, milk powder can turn brown over time and it's because they may a reaction happening. So do you want to open up and see what you're expecting is a nice all-foy creamy milk powder and it's, it's brown and gross. So that's a time where you don't want it. Also too, uh, you know, Maillard reactions can lower some of the nutritive value. So in the case of the flavor, it, it's not important. We're going for flavor. Nobody's adding a flavor to add um, nutrition to their their end product. They're adding it because they want it to taste good. So yes, that's when we, when the Mayard reactions are friend. But you know, as far as appearance or quality long term, particularly with dairy, it wouldn't be a good thing. Now I remember we kind of discussed something briefly yesterday that the Mayard excuse me Mayard reaction actually happens in humans too. Or on humans, I should say. What what's that what's that example for us? Oh, the the age spots. So I mean that's a very, very slow yeah. <laughs> reaction. But yeah, all that. I mean, think about it. Your skin has proteins in it. It's we have glucose in us. So we've got those reactions. And we go out in the sunshine and now I mean when we're tanning, that's a different biological pathway, but Age spots over time, it's a uh, little air browning because the sun's put that energy in there for us too. Now, are wrinkles the same thing? That is actually has to do with more of the elasticity in your skin oh, and you're, you're losing collagen. Uh, matter of fact, have you ever noticed, uh, you know, as people, as they age, you'll, they'll get the lines on mm-hmm. their face and they're called marionette lines. And it's because mm-hmm. the skin's no longer elastic and they lose the collagen. So it doesn't. And then if you're like me, you know, when I'm thinking I do this, so, you know, I've got the, the forehead dent now. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> yep. I was going to say, my daughter gives me a lot of the Mayard reactions up here. Frankly, for a thing, but. <laughs> That's 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 not true anymore. I can't blame that. <laughs> so Lisa, at the end of our podcast, before we do kind of the fun section of things, not that the whole podcast isn't fun because it is, <laughs> let's go ahead and give our listeners maybe two takeaways. If you have more, great, but let's let's go with that. Well, first takeaway, most reaction flavors are natural. We follow IOFI guidelines, and according to our regulations, if you start with natural ingredients, which most amino acids are, most reducing sugar, sugars are, and you adhere to certain time temperature parameters, what comes out is a natural flavor. And what we're seeing is our customers request natural flavors. They want something authentic, and that's what a reaction flavor can bring. The second thing is I do want to reinforce that it's a great way to build in technical insulation. And these flavors, in addition to doing that, are also adding complexity. So that's Excitement for our mouth, too. We don't want to eat something smoky or taste artificial. What do we want? We want grandma's cooking. We want, like you said, things that are familiar. Well, what's more familiar than flavors that you make in your own kitchen? I mean, nothing. Because everything I make is is handed down to me from my parents, you know, either that or the internet. And, you know, the internet's never wrong. 
Um, <laughs> it's a wealthy except for, yeah, yeah. <laughs> except for that time I went to make bread and screwed that up. But, you know, that, that was a, that was a uh, pandemic thing anyways. Well, bread may our reaction too. Yep. You couldn't get yep. that nice bread crust without without it. <laughs> I, I mean, I had a crust that it worked out perfectly, but it was the 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 density of the bread itself. It was mm-hmm. it was um, how would you say the stone like? <laughs> <laughs> it definitely had a chew to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to the final part of our podcast. These are just quick off the cuff questions. You know, answer them however you like, or plead the fifth <laughs> if you have to. Uh, so <laughs> first question uh, that I have for you is what is the most unexpected reaction you've had when compounding or creating? Oh my goodness. I've had some, somewhere I went to go and release the pressure on the reactor and stuff just started bubbling out of the port. And I'm like, holy cow, what do I do? Got some beakers, got to catch this. But it was like the, the creature from the black lagoon oozing out of my <laughs> For a second there, I thought it was like going to be like bubbles, like Willy Wonka and the fizzy lifting drinks or something. <laughs> I haven't created that yet, but Chef Gabby has. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah, he did these really cool, um, he flavored bubbles so that you could, you know, blow them and then you could catch the bubble in your mouth and the flavor would release on your tongue. It was um, very, I mean, I don't know how we'll commercialize that, but it's a really cool idea. <laughs> I mean, I'm in. I mean, <laughs> my daughter loves bubbles, and she, you know, she's constantly just letting them go to waste on the floor. So, you know, let's let's go after these. Um, okay, so if I had to, you know, make you choose between uh, Maillard reactions and compound flavors, what do you choose? Obviously, my love is reaction flavors, but I. I'm also learning the compound side, even though I, uh, you know, my heart and soul is for a reaction flavor. Again, I'm not kicking the the compound flavors. There are things that both of them do well. It's it's kind of like they're on the same team and they both want to win. So if you can use them together, that's the best scenario. Last question. And I know that people can't see you, but I, I'm going to, I'll have you describe what you're doing. Whenever you get a sour or bad taste or bad reaction, what is the face that you make? <laughs> so what you guys can't see is that Elisa just did a very, very prominent frown um, <laughs> w- with a little bit of disgust note on the end because we have to use our descriptors when we're talking about faces and flavors. Well, and I have uh, to mention I'm sensitive to bitter Mm. And w- one of the things about Mayer reactions too, a lot of those brown melanoidin compounds, they tend to be bitter. Think about like chocolate. If you didn't have sugar in it, it would be pretty bitter. Coffee. Mm. Oh, forgot about coffee. Great example of Mayer re- reaction too. Um, but it's bitter as well. So, you know, that's probably why, you know, you have your milk in there and your sugar and make it delicious. So if you're sensitive to bitter, does that make you a super taster? I actually am, but you don't have to be to be a good reaction. No, no, but I I love to find people with superpowers like that (laughs) Uh, because I am not. So it's I just it always makes me very curious. All right. Well, that's it for Flavor University. I'm Corey Doucette, and I'd like to thank our special guest, Lisa Bird, for joining us today. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, the flavor of McCormick Fauna is the flavor of life. So go out and taste it.